Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks very much to, again, to uh, all the members and friends of the Columbus KTC uh, for organizing this weekend and for all of you, especially those of you who were here last evening and help us, helped us carry all of the cushions upstairs and rearrange them and create the shrine all over again. Talk about, talk about the merit of, yay, yay team, yay. Uh, and thanks to, uh, to all of the uh, folks at the Thurber Center uh, for hosting us once again. I love this room. This room is like really kind of cool. Uh, so I can imagine doing a shamatha retreat in this room. It's kind of nice, kind of be kind of light for that. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, today we're going to continue the, uh, the program that we started uh, last evening on uh, the, the uh, finding freedom finding freedom in the Buddhist tradition. Uh, a lot of folks uh, are very interested in Buddhism when they first hear about it or read about it. Uh, they're inspired by the teachings of the Buddha. They're inspired by the idea of meditation, even if they can't quite master the techniques of meditation. Uh, but they have a lot of uh, affection uh, for uh, Buddhism and for the teachings. And, uh, and I figured that it would be good to um, start there, start with this feeling of affection that we have for Dharma, and then use that to expand and build, expand on our affection uh, for Dharma by sharing uh, the methods for uh, Buddhas, uh, I'm sorry, Buddhahood and awakening. Because I like to say that uh, Buddhism is a unique spiritual tradition in that in Buddhism, everyone who is a student can eventually become the Buddha. If I was, uh, a couple of my friends on Facebook were having a discussion about inspiring things that they had heard, and one of the people mentioned hearing for the first time that they had. Buddha nature and how that made them feel to imagine or know that they had the potential to become a Buddha themselves and how what a what an amazing moment that was for them and uh, and I think that this is I think the what really brings that inspiration fully uh, into our lives is when we recognize and realize for the first time that we have a mind that has the potential to awaken and so um, so I want uh, I want that I want that to be my, the second stop on my tour this morning first is our affection and inspiration for Buddhism and then the second is what happens to us that moment that we learn that we have Buddha nature that we have a mind that can know itself and know itself completely and awaken to perfect Buddhahood. At first, it seems a little bit like a fairy tale. I compare it to the scene in that old movie, Hook. I know, not the best movie about Peter Pan, but Robin Williams played Peter Pan. I mean, how does it get any better than that? There's this lovely moment at the beginning of the film where the Peter Pan character, having forgotten that he's Peter Pan, is awakened to that knowledge by someone from his past. And at first, he can't believe it. He won't believe it. He shan't believe it. 
and it's almost with a bit of anger that he learns this. And I think about all of the range of emotions I felt <laughs> when I first realized that, uh, that I had the potential to awaken. One was, wow. Another was, oh. Does this mean I have to leave behind everything I know? Does this mean I have to leave behind everything I love? I don't know if I want to go. If Buddhahood means leaving all these things, and so forth and so on. And then there's the performance anxiety. You mean I have to do it in this lifetime? But in the end, uh, where I ended up with it was uh, inspired. I ended up with it as being inspired because, the, because of the way Kempo Kartan Rinpoche introduced it. He said, if only you knew who you really were and what you were capable of, you would be astonished or astounded and amazed. And that really stuck with me. It stuck with me to today. But if that's the case, if that's the case that we all have Buddha nature and we all have the potential to awaken, why is it that we're not awake right now? Why is it? Why is that? Why is it that when we wake up in the morning, we feel naturally our first thought is, I'm hungry, where's breakfast? And our second thought might be, oh, that thing that happened yesterday, it still makes me mad. Or that thing that's going to happen today, I'm so afraid. It's so interesting that if we have Buddha nature, that we would then awaken with all of this vast array of mental afflictions. And so, in a way, these two things happening so close together, we might scratch our heads and say, is this Buddha nature thing for real? But because our teachers are so blessed, and we're so blessed, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. We'll say, okay, maybe I have Buddha nature, but I still can't figure out how will I ever uncover it? How will I ever become a Buddha? It seems like it's a, an interminable task. Well, the good news is that it might be long, yes, but there is no journey more worthwhile than to take this journey toward Buddhahood. Even if we don't arrive in this lifetime, the Tibetans are very wonderful people. They take such a long view of things. I remember the first time Kempa Rinpoche said to me, don't worry, if you don't get enlightened in this lifetime, you'll do it the next lifetime, or the next, or the next. He says, you have to be working several lifetimes ahead. You have to not worry about whether you're going to accomplish something this lifetime. You're practicing for your future. And that made me feel a little more comfortable. I wasn't going to have to do it this time. I wasn't going to have to do it right this minute. But I was going to have to make a start because of that karma thing. If you remember last evening, we started talking about karma from the point of view of the Buddha's teaching, where he says, we are what we think, all we are arises with our thoughts, and with our thoughts we make the world. So what this means is that we are creating karma, or habits, every moment. We're creating habits every single moment. Every moment that we're awake, that we're asleep, no matter what, we are making and creating habits. The Tibetans call these habits 
bok chok. Funny word, but at least it rhymes. B-A-K, B-A-K, C-H-A-K, bok chok. The chok is like um, attachment. Uh, and uh, it, it's, the, it's the root of the name karma chakme, Rinpoche, for example. So bok chak, these habitual attachments or these habitual tendencies. We're making bok chak all the time. That's what Rinpoche said. The way we consciously and purposefully respond to things and consciously and purposefully do things, consciously and purposefully say things, this is making habits that we will experience from now into the future, the results of which we will experience from now into the future. So a lot of people would feel weighted down by this news because they may, as we were observing last night, they may tend to focus their attention on the negative things that they have been, the negative things that they have said, and the negative things that they have done. However, as we talked about last evening, there are also the positive things we have said, the positive things we have been, the positive things we have done. We get to keep all of that. We can enlarge the good and purify the not so good. This is the function of all Buddhist practice, is to awaken our understanding of Buddha nature, purify and clarify any negativity and bring to fruition all inherent qualities. So that's, the, uh, that's the meaning of the word for Buddha in Tibetan, Sanje. Sang, S-A-N-G, Sang means fully purified, and J means completely ripened. So Sangje is one who has fully purified all of their negative habits, negative karma, negative habitual patterns, and has brought to fruition all of their positive qualities. So the, the bottom line is there is hope for us all. So let's go back to uh, the original question, which is uh, if we have Buddha nature, how is it that we are not Buddhas right this minute? The main reason, according to the teachings, is that we don't know that we have Buddha nature, which is why I have made such a strong point of saying it. I said it last night, I said it today, and I'll say it until the end of the program. That's the main obstacle to being a Buddha, is knowing, is not knowing that you have Buddha nature. Not knowing that you have this potential. You get lost. You get lost. In, the, um, in all of the various, how shall we say, uh, distractions of this world. We get very lost in all of this, because this world can be quite compelling, can be very compelling, very persuasive. How many times have you had a thought that kind of pulled on your sleeve, oops, sorry, not that way, pulled on your sleeve and said, hey, I'm really important, you must think me. Or, uh, or an experience that you had that was so powerful that it pulled on your sleeve and said, you must not forget me ever. <laughs> this also happens for negative things, but you, you understand. This world is so 
immediate and so compelling, and our mind allows us to experience it through the uh, the five or six sense senses, the five uh, physical senses: the eyes, the nose, the tongue, the ears, the skin, and the taste. You know, so uh, and also the sixth. Uh, perceptual entrance, which is thought. So these six entrances allow us to experience so much. By the way, if the if the sound is, it, what you can do is maybe run the fan in the hallway, and that will give you some. Oh, there's a oh there's a door at the stairs that you can close the door at the stairs, and that way we get air here. If there is a door at the stairs. Is there a door at the stairs? Yep, there is. And that'll help, because I, I noticed that it's a little distracting for some folks in the back. Yeah, there we go. Is, so is there a door at the, okay, at the stairs? Oh, there we go. Thank you. That'll help a little bit. I noticed it's a little bit distracting for the folks in the back. I want to help you. Okay. Um, so um, this world is very compelling, and so we're quite distracted by it. And when we're not being distracted by the world directly through things that are happening to us, we're distracted by the world indirectly by thinking about it. Oh, this thing happened, or that thing happened, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that, or this was painful, that was painful. What will happen in the future? What happened in the past? So we stay quite busy. We stay quite busy, and we are so we are so endowed in this modern world with so many ways to hash and rehash our experiences. Have you ever heard of this thing called Facebook? There are so many ways to solidify and reify experience that we're dazzled by them all, and we're quite distracted. Being drawn outward in this way, always drawn outward, we don't look within. We aren't inspired to look within. We are thinking that happiness is out there and that we can somehow scoop it up and bring it to ourselves and have it forever. Which, of course, as we know from having tried to do this in numerous times, it doesn't seem to work. But that doesn't mean we're going to stop trying. Try to scoop up the whole world, bring it in. So you would think that in this kind of situation, uh, we would feel a little hopeless. Uh, but they, uh, there's, there's no need to feel a lack of hope. There's a couple of things that will help us. Um, I listened to a teaching once by His Eminence Thai Sita Rinpoche. Thay Sita Rinpoche is an artist. He does calligraphy and uh, takes uh, beautiful photographs that are art quality, writes poetry, and so forth. He actually said once that the arts can be a, a, a method to introduce people to the spiritual. He said, if you are touched if you are touched by a work of art, dance, song, music, poetry, painting, literature, whatever, 
He says, if it, something touches you, he said, that is proof to you of your Buddha nature, of the existence of your Buddha nature, because that is what allows you to be touched, is the presence of your Buddha nature. And so he said, for many people, their introduction to the world of art is a, an upliftment out of their usual distracted state, which I just think is marvelous. Because I've met so many people who have been stunned by art. They come into the presence of a great painting and they just, they just stare at it. They can't get enough of it. And I've seen the same thing happen with performance and dance, music, everything. People sit in stunned silence at the beauty of it and the truth of it. So interestingly enough, art can serve a bodhisattva purpose. Fascinating, right? But also, if we meet and encounter Buddhas or their images or the Dharma, we can also be inspired and uplifted feeling something we never felt before. I've talked to so many people who've gone to holy places, both of the Buddhist tradition and of other faith traditions, these places that have been invested with so much positive energy by the adherents of so many world faiths. They go to a holy place and they feel something. They know that there's something more than this world that they can see. And the uh, just recently, when Kemper Rinpoche gave that beautiful uh, teaching on, um, I believe it was the, the teaching on prostrations, he gave a few months ago, he said that when we see images of the Buddha, it touches us in a special way, and it stays with us, and we are uplifted and inspired by it. So. You could say that even though we don't know we have Buddha nature, perhaps there are little bridges that Buddha nature can build to us, from the beauty of art to the, to the truth and beauty that is contained in Buddhist imagery, uh, literature, and so forth. So that's, for some of us, the very first inkling that there's something going on. But then there's also the inkling that comes to us through the practice of meditation. And that's why last night I spent a, a, a few minutes teaching meditation and we meditated together. Kempro Kartarabache once said, for many people, they uh, won't instantly have faith that they have Buddha nature. They won't instantly have faith in that. But if they meditate, even just once, and they have the opportunity to feel different, to experience their mind differently than they experienced it before, the, he said, then they will have faith in uh, the, the teachings of the Buddha and will want to practice them. So what, uh, what we're talking about then this morning is we all have Buddha nature, but the biggest obstacle to uncovering the Buddha nature is not knowing it. And then compounding, compounded to that is all of the distraction we feel by this world, which seems so close and so imminent and so full of potential for happiness, but the happiness of this world is so fleeting. It's so fleeting. It only lasts for a few moments and then we want to have it again. It's kind of like the kid on the roller coaster. 
kid gets on the roller coaster, has a great time, gets off the roller coaster and goes back and stands in line again because they want to do it again. So you see, uh, something, uh, this one thing about enjoying all of the great things of this world, they're so distracting that we talk about them so much, is that there's a built-in craving. There's a built-in craving that happens when we enjoy something mindlessly. There are lots of ways to enjoy things, but in the, uh, in the teachings of the Buddha, the majority of us enjoy things mindlessly with the focus on our self-concept. Like, I am scooping up this happiness and bringing it to myself. And it belongs to me now. Don't you mess with my happiness, you person over there. Don't mess with my happiness. And so what we end up doing most of the time is reifying a mistake that happiness is somehow out there and we can grab it and pull it in and keep it. And so the teachings, all the teachings of the Dharma that teach us and point us toward liberation tell us you have Buddha nature and pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Pay no attention to those distractions that are distracting you from resting in and seeing and resting in your Buddha essence. Pay no attention to those because they will lead you astray. And so it is that teachings like the teaching on the wheel of life arise. They arise as a method for showing us the path to liberation and how to take that path. As I mentioned last evening, they're a pictorial representation of the teachings of the Buddha. In fact, uh, in fact it, it occurred to me last night that they may be the first written teachings of the Buddha, although they were written in pictures, not in words. Mm. Because the, the painting that we know as the Wheel of Life was uh, commissioned by the Buddha to give... Uh, to King uh, Bimbisara, so that King Bimbisara could give it to one of the other kings of northern India who had given him a great gift. Uh, King Bimbisara was one of the patrons of the Buddha and uh, sponsored teachings by him and whatnot. And he, this King Bimbisara had received a gift from a neighboring king, and he wanted to return the favor, a great gift in return. And the Buddha said, I know just the thing paint this, and then he explained how it should look and so forth and so on. He said, now send this to your friend. It would be the best repayment for his gift. He uh, opened it up, looked at it, and had an experience that was transcendent. And so you could say that the, that the, the teachings of the Buddha are all contained in this drawing. And they have the potential to awaken people who experience them. Of course, a drawing is just a drawing until you know what it means. So uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to go uh, through the drawing today and tomorrow several times. The reason for this is because um, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a slow learner. And it took me several exposures to this teaching to really 
grasp it. And until then, I felt a little intimidated by it. And I also felt a little um, even resentful of it because I just couldn't get it. But the more I had it explained, the easier it got. And so uh, explaining the path to liberation more than once in a weekend seminar may seem a little bit redundant, repetitive, but it might help somebody. I know it would have helped me. <laughs> so at any rate, that's what we're going to do today. So um, before uh, I get started uh, into the drawing, I want to see if anybody has questions about this first part. Because uh, in this first part, we summarized uh, last evening's topic about Buddha nature, about our tendency to be distracted from Buddha nature by all the things that happen in this world, uh, our self-centeredness, which is the Buddha said was the cause of our suffering and our confusion, and a little bit about uh, Dharma in general. So if anybody has questions about this first part, I figure I better start there. Yes. I think that's well said. I'm going to go ahead and repeat the question. Is that helpful if I repeat the question? Okay. Um, the question is, um, last evening I spoke about uh, the, the four noble truths, and under the heading of the fourth noble truth, the path, I explained the Buddha's uh, four statements, do no harm, practice virtue, and tame your mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha, which if you take that last one away, because it's just a summary, you have three. And the question is, are these three the the basis for the path all all of the way that's the way i heard your question is that what you're saying is that what was that okay oh it is our experience from having practiced those what motivates us moving forward i from my personal experience this is just my personal experience. I can't speak from a general Buddhist teaching point of view, but from my personal experience, the answer to that has to be yes. It has to be yes, because when you refrain, when you refrain from harming others, there's, um, there's a, a sense of peace that can overcome you. And when you do good for others, there's a sense of deep satisfaction. And when you tame your mind, you begin to feel inwardly stabilized. I mean, we're not fully stabilized for a long time through meditation. But when we actually sit and practice meditation, we can begin to feel somewhat stabilized in ourselves when we are practicing meditation. And then gradually, when we're not practicing meditation, as I mentioned last evening, we can begin to become aware of our patterns and see how our patterns cause us suffering. 
and begin to set aside those patterns and replace them because most of those patterns are self-centered and then replace those patterns with uh, other centeredness which sometimes is called the bodhisattva path or the, bodhi, the path of bodhicitta the mind that wants to awaken and wants to awaken through the practice of love and compassion and so I feel that there is a certain truth to what your to your statement from my own personal experience because having particularly worked on uh, the practice of bodhicitta not perfected but I'm still you know I'm dedicated to it my nose is in that direction even if I haven't accomplished anything through it I just keep feeling as though benefiting others has got to be the core of uncovering Buddha nature and discarding self-centered fixation and so I would say the answer to your question would have to be from my point of view yes that that the that the results we get from practice inspire us to keep practicing because we we begin to see like the signpost at the side of the road that we are actually heading in the proper direction and it feels like we're going the right way so I appreciate that did you have was there did I miss a part of the question or was okay thank you for asking other questions that people might have yes This is well said. Um, the, I'm going to see if I can repeat it properly. Um, the, the question is, uh, is samsara uh, not so much a place as it is a state of mind? And is the tree we see outside the window neither samsara nor nirvana? I'm, I'm adding something. But except for how we perceive it. And um, that's my, this is my understanding of the teachings. It may not be perfect, but it's my understanding of the teachings that samsara and nirvana are actually uh, the same place the same place it uh, but we are are different and that is that's what determines whether we are in samsara or in in the state of nirvana or peace is how we respond to the world if we see it clearly through what's called the um, ultimate truth there's like that when the Buddha taught, he said, this world is, we're, we're living in the world of relative truth, where things appear real, permanent, and unchanging, until we look within, experience our Buddha nature um, definitively, completely, without remnant. When we begin to experience our Buddha nature, they call that arriving at the first level or bumi of bodhisattva awakening when we be when we become a, someone who does not fall back into samsaric conceptualization um, that then the world the, the the samsaric world actually reveals itself to be the awakened world and so it really then comes down to and depends upon our personal cultivation of doing no harm practicing virtue and taming the mind it really comes down to that um, the the relative truth as I mentioned earlier 
is the, the, the world as it appears. And the ultimate truth is described as the world as it really is. What we are seeing now is not the world as it really is. We're seeing the world as we imagine it to be, but it's not how. It's how it appears, but it's not how it really is. Relative is how it appears. Ultimate is how it really is. When Rinpoche, when Kempervache first started teaching Dharma, he said this a lot. He would talk about, we have to see the world as it really is. And I kept going, yeah, yeah. But I kept, what does that mean? <laughs> he would repeat it over and over. The ultimate truth is the world, seeing the world as it really is, as opposed to how it appears. It appears to be a world where we gather all of that happiness externally and pull it to ourselves and keep it somehow permanently. I mean, which is weird because it's everything's impermanent and we try to paint permanence on it. And this is the cause of great suffering. So from the ultimate point of view, when we can see how things really are and begin to let go and not grasp and our mind becomes stable and peaceful in itself, and then sees that the, it, it, that it itself, that the mind itself, is really the author of all of our experience, and we see that in a way that is definitive and complete, that's Buddhahood. Not just the intellectual idea, but the actual uh, realization of that. So I appreciate that. That's, really, that's excellent. O other things that people might want to discuss or say. Let's uh, sit quietly uh, for just a, a maybe three, two or three or four minutes and do a little meditation and then we'll hand out the papers and start walking through the diagram, okay? Um, this is um, just a brief review. Uh, when you're sitting in meditation in a chair, your feet can be flat on the floor, your hands palm downward on your legs. If you're sitting on, uh, on I'm sorry, if you're sitting in a chair, uh, your feet are flat on the floor, hands palm downward on the legs. If you're sitting on the floor, your legs can be crossed. Again, your hands palm downward, beginning with uh, the seat, the legs, the seat, the back, the shoulders, hands and arms, the chin tucked in slightly, the gaze downward, and the tip of the tongue touched to the upper palate behind the front teeth to relax the muscles of the face. We begin meditation with a mental aspiration, thinking, I will meditate for the next few minutes, being aware of my breath coming and going, and practicing letting go when thoughts distract me, and returning my attention to the breath for a fresh start. I will do this for the benefit of all sentient beings. And then, beginning with one deep breath, we allow the breath to become natural and follow its course.
that was a short session of meditation. Any questions about meditation? Things that happen, things that don't happen? Questions? Okay, just had to check. Um, let's uh, hand out some paperwork here. I'm looking to see if I had some from last night. a few. I'm trying to think. Because I handed out some of the drawings. Anybody have drawings from last night? I may or may not have enough. I may not have enough. Um, we'll just get started. Somebody wants to pass them out. I just found two more. Anybody lacking? Uh, I may have a couple more. Any, any more floating around here? Anybody missing one here? Yeah, you're missing one. How many missing? We got one, two, three. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, four. There's a fourth one. Uh, how many again? Let me let me see hands again. How many people missing? Oh, one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, I thought I I thought for sure I had a bunch last night and then I must have misplaced them. Let's see. Oh, here's here's more. I thought I had some more from last night. There you go. I could have swore I could have swore I had made those, and I just put them in the wrong part of the file. Yeah. Some of the images are slight. Some of the images are slightly smaller than the others. Uh, it's only just a slight small smaller. I found out that I could print it a little bigger. Thank you. And, yeah. Okay. Um, the um, yeah, the, the one image is slightly smaller, printed slightly smaller than the other. They're the same image. It's just that one printed uh, printed slightly smaller. Um, because this is a pictorial image, a pictorial image, and not um, a book, there's very little explanation in it. The you can see at the upper right hand corner, the Buddha is pointing to the legend on the other side. And uh, the legend basically uh, explains that, uh, that this is the, uh, the method, uh, this, dis this displays the nature of samsara and, uh, and, and how a person uh, can go from being, uh, can be liberated from confusion and become awakened. And, uh, and so the, uh, the being that is holding this wheel is described as being uh, Yama, and you can see he's um, he's uh, he looks like a, a kind of a, a, a wrathful figure wearing a, a, a tiara of skulls, 
with uh, three uh, wandering eyes, and he's also wearing a uh, tiger skin skirt that you can see the tiger skin at the bottom of the image. Uh, Yama is seen sometimes as the Lord of Death, uh, which is a code word for samsara. And the sufferings, all of the sufferings of samsara are frequently abbreviated in one word in Buddhist teachings, death and all the rest. Um, and because death is the, for many, the worst suffering of samsara is the pain of death, the fear of death, and so forth. So Yama then represents uh, you could call him the Lord of Samsara. Uh, so he represents that. Um, I'm going to read to you from a um, from a, a handout that was prepared by uh, a group of uh, Buddhist practitioners in Australia, and um, I can also use. Uh, I'm also using for this weekend's um, discussion uh, Tranga Rinpoche's uh, book on the 12 links of interdependence. And, um, and in this, he talks about the, um, the wheel of life and how uh, it is an illustration of uh, our confusion. It's basically, I mean, what you could say about the, <laughs> about the wheel of life drawing is that it's like, diagramming a sentence. Remember when we were kids, some of us learned how to diagram sentences, what the subject, the object, and so forth were in the sentence? Well, in a way, this diagrams all of the sufferings of samsara in, in a type of pictorial shorthand. At any rate, um, here it's uh, in, the, in the Australian um, description it says, Yama is sometimes seen as a principle of wisdom that shows us the nature of samsara. Endowed with a crown of the five wisdoms and other attributes of a wrathful, enlightened being, but in most contexts, Yama, who is called also the Lord of Death, represents the deluded construction of time in which the painful experience of samsara revolves. So you could, so he's basically saying from the ultimate level, yama is just a display of wisdom showing us the suffering of samsara. But in most contexts, he is seen as the um, deluded construction, the sort of the holder of this deluded construction. Here he is showing the wheel as though he is presenting information. But you can see he's also got it in his, in his grip. So anyone who is in samsara is in the, in the grip and held in the teeth and claws of the Lord of Death. The Buddha taught that our existence is neither the creation of some external power or a random occurrence. This is according to the teachings of Tranga Rinpoche, who said that at the time of the Buddha, 
there were two explanations for suffering. One was that the gods caused it. The gods who created the world caused suffering. The other explanation was that there was no cause to suffering at all, that it happened in a random chaotic universe. But the Buddha, as usual, took a middle path between these two extremes and said, all things come from causes. All things come from causes. And then he taught action, cause, and effect, the law of karma. And so his explanation of how samsara begins and ends all comes from causes. Everything comes from a cause. So the um, the Buddha taught that our existence is neither the creation of some external power nor random occurrence, and all of our experience takes place within the construction of time. Interestingly enough, even physics is trying to let us know that time may not really exist the way we think it does. Uh, time and space may not exist the way we think they do, which kind of makes my head hurt. But it is interesting to see that even science is talking about transcendence in an odd sort of way, that things may not, they may actually be embracing the concept of ultimate truth, if not the reality of ultimate truth, which is really interesting. Kemper Bache was asked about science once. They say, well, what do you think? What do you think about science? Are they getting close to understanding ultimate truth? And his answer was, he says, well, this is just my opinion. He said, this is just my opinion. He said, I think they've made really good progress on relative truth. <laughs> and that they've been able to describe relative truth, you know, gravity, outer space, you know. They've been at biology. They've been able to describe relative truth pretty well. And he said, I would even venture to say they're, they're, they're pretty much done with relative truth. But ultimate truth, they haven't even made a dent in it. They haven't even come close. So, but I think it's, there is a, a moment coming where there may be some entertainment of the notion of ultimate truth in the future. I'm just saying. This is just, again, my opinion. Anyway, Yama, in this illustration, clutches the wheel of samsaric existence with his teeth and claws, indicating how our existence is held by this delusory projection of time with its endless cycle of change and impermanence. Uh, I have to tell you something funny about Minjur Rinpoche. Many of you may know uh, Mingyur or Minjur Rinpoche as being the young uh, uh, reincarnate Lama who walked away from his monastery and did a four-year retreat out in the wilderness and then came back. Well, uh, he said one time, uh, he said, well, you know, he said, there's a problem with time. And he said, and it, it, it just doesn't exist the way we think it does. He says, for example, let's take now for an example. He said, you know, you can divide a second into milliseconds and nanoseconds and tiny seconds and this and that. He said, but you can't quite ever get to now because now is always a moment that has just passed. You can't, you can't grab it. It's gone. It's instantly gone in the moment you reach for it. So he said, think about that. Whew. Okay. All right. So, all right. 
I'm going to go back and repeat this. Uh, Yama clenches the wheel of existence with his teeth and claws, indicating how our existence is held by this delusory projection of time with its endless cycle of change and impermanence. Yep, nothing is permanent except impermanence. Sometimes Yama is also portrayed as a skeleton, another illustration of impermanence. Nothing in our existence is permanent. Nothing in our subjective psychology or in the objective world around us remains unchanged. Powerful words, those. Nothing in the external world or the internal world remains unchanged. Until we realize the wisdom that sees through the constructions of time, we suffer endlessly in this cycle of continuous change. So as we paint, try to paint permanence on everything that is impermanent, we sow the seeds of continuous frustration until we uh, learn how to let go. Well, so there's the, he's, he's, uh, this image of Yama then is uh, an image of how we are confused by uh, the, what is it, the relative truth of how things appear. Does anybody have questions about this first part? Yama, samsara, so forth. Just thought I'd check. All right. So, huh? I don't know. I think that uh, that Yama is seen as uh, frightening. Uh, possibly, oh, sorry, uh, a frightening, possibly destructive force, as a way of talking about how, um, uh, as a way of talking about the suffering. It's like the, the suffering that's inherent in samsara is depicted pictorially by a, a frightening being. Yeah, that's kind of what I, that's what I would get out of it. Others may have other thoughts. But other things that people might want to say or ask about, about Yama. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really true. That breaking through samsara and the confusion and delusion, it's gonna, it is gonna take courage because, in a way, it's something I, I mentioned earlier. It's like leaving behind everything you know, everything with which you are familiar, and that's a little, that's a little scary. I don't know if that's why Yama is depicted as being scary, but it's interesting, isn't it? Other other questions or thoughts? Got something? They, that's correct. They are skeletons. Yeah, they are they are skulls. Uh, he, he has a crown of five skulls, which skulls, which um, uh, are illustrative of the five wisdoms, actually. Yeah, which are the transcendence of the five negative mental states, but we'll get into all that down the line. Yes? Yeah, 
I, I think that uh, we, could, uh, we could extend the supposition pretty far. We could, uh, we could try to figure it out without knowing. So I think maybe the better thing is we'll ask one of the llamas as to why that is. The five wisdoms. And if you'd like for me uh, to list them, I may not be able to do so off the top of my head, but I can look it up for you during the break and get that for you first thing after the break. Yes? Sure, I'm happy to do that. Um, the, uh, I'm going to give you a scientific example of relative and ultimate truth first, and then I'll give you a Dharma example of relative and ultimate truth first. Okay, does that sound good? The relative truth is how things appear. The ultimate truth is how things really are. So that's the definition from a Buddhist point of view. From the relative point of view, this table is real because it appears to be real. It's got, you know, it's got solidity. It's got weight. It's got, you know, it looks like it's going to last for a while. So it gives the impression of solidity and permanence. However, if we were to look inside of it, into its molecular structure, we would see that it isn't as it appears at all, that it's mostly made of space, and that there are electrons whizzing around, and you know, and, you, and, that, and that really, technically, it's none of those things that it appears. It's not solid. It's not permanent. It's decaying right in front of our eyes, extremely slowly, but it is decaying. And so that's a scientific example of relative and ultimate truth. Now let's go for a dharmic example of relative and ultimate truth. Um, a thought that arises in our mind, it has uh, an appearance to us, it appears to us, that thought. And while it is appearing, we think of that thought as being quite real. And we believe what it's telling us. Like, oh, well, this is good, or this is bad, and so forth, right? But if we take our attention away from the thought, even just momentarily, it begins to dissolve and disappear, showing its ultimate nature, which is nothing. So those are a couple of ways of talking about the ultimate truth of things versus the, the truth of how things really are versus the truth of how things appear. Those are just a couple examples. There are tons more. Any other questions? Okay. So uh, we'll continue then uh, talking about the wheel of existence itself. Uh, samsara, the cycle of becoming, is um, uh, illustrated with the image of a wheel. Remember I said we were going to talk about, we're going to diagram how we got confused? How did we get confused? How did we not know we had Buddha nature? How did that happen exactly? Was there ever a time when we knew we had Buddha nature and then somehow we got confused? Was there a fall from grace like in the story of the Garden of Eden, etc., etc.? The, the, the Rinpoches and Lamas have been asked this question, and the answer is no. It's not that there was ever a state in which we were enlightened and then fell from grace. It's not like that at all. 
the way when Kemper Pache was asked about this, he said, our Buddha nature has always been with us, always. But it is always, at the same time, possessed the potential to not know itself. So in other words, Buddha nature and the ignorance of our Buddha nature have always been side by side forever. Uh, he said that this is because Buddha nature is limitless. Our Buddha nature is limitless. Our Buddha nature is limitless. If you think about it, it's true. Our mind has no color, no shape, no location, no beginning, no end. From an ultimate point of view, Buddha nature is limitless, is without limit. Well, the way Rinpoche says this, he said, if Buddha nature is truly limitless, it has to possess the potential to not know itself. Otherwise, it wouldn't truly be limitless. And so he said this, he called it the mere sheen of ignorance, like the oil sheen on a puddle of water. This mere sheen of ignorance has been in front of Buddha nature since beginningless time. And so this mere sheen of ignorance, the not knowing of its presence, has prevented us from seeing its presence since beginningless time. And so the habit of not knowing our, uh, about our Buddha nature has continued and continued and continued and continued until someone tells us, by the way, you have Buddha nature. And then we begin to work with it, search for it, experience it, and so forth. And so until that time, we're under a delusion that everything in the external world is permanent, that our mind is permanent, unchanging, and then we have all kinds of suffering because we cling to this delusion of permanence. The example that, uh, that I've used before about this is the, um, and you've heard it a million times, is the parakeet in the mirror. People put mirrors in, ca in the cages with their birds because the birds are entertained by the images that appear in the, in the mirror. They're entertained by that. Some birds actually believe that there is another bird behind the glass and doesn't recognize that that is its own reflection. The, the image of the bird behind the glass, they, they think there's a real, the image of the bird in the glass is another bird. They, they have a misunderstanding. And so if they're in a good mood, they cuddle the image. If they're in a bad mood, they attack the image. Or they could be completely indifferent to the image. But they misperceive it as being another bird. And this is what happens to us every moment of every day. We have experiences of this room, of this day, of our thoughts. And these experiences, we immediately assume are something other than the mind that is having it. We experience a thought and think, oh, something has happened. It's like you've got mail. 
okay, you know. I must read it. It must be important. And, you know, it's, and that's how we treat the thoughts that arise in our mind, as though they were real. We don't, for a moment, recognize them as being anything other than real. We don't even see them as being coming from our mind. Whereas if we looked at the mirror and saw our reflection and knew that it was nothing other than ourselves that we were seeing, now that would be something. Then we wouldn't take those thoughts so seriously. We wouldn't live and die by those thoughts. Fascinating, huh? or those experiences of the world, which are happening in our mind all the time. Our experience of this room, I've got news for you. It's happening in your mind. <laughs> the, uh, the room, it has a very compelling appearance, looks real, tastes real, is real in some ways. It, it has that appearance, but the experience of this room is happening in our and it always has ever been thus. It always happens in our minds. So at any rate, um, I, I had to say that, to establish that, because the engine of samsara is contained in each and every one of us. And it's our not knowing our Buddha nature, not recognizing that all experience is mine. And this is why it is depicted as a wheel in the center of which are three animals. You'll see the three animals in the center are a, a, a rooster, uh, a pig, and a snake. Uh, not, to, not to disrespect these three animals, but they do symbolize something in iconography. Um, the pig uh, does symbolize ignorance. Now, I know all my friends who are animal fans, they say pigs are actually extremely smart, and yes, I understand this, but we're looking at traditional iconography here and the symbol symbolism in traditional iconography. I have no idea why they're considered to be ignorant. I think it's because they eat anything. And they, well, they, they eat anything. They, they Actually, they will eat just about anything. So, um, so I think that this indiscriminate well, it's actually biting the tail of the snake. Yeah. yeah and, the ta and the snake is biting the tail of the rooster, which is biting the tail of the pig. So the idea is that ignorance gives rise to uh, both uh, aggression, or anger, which is the serpent, and attachment, which is the rooster. And so the idea here is that it's, a, it's an endless circle. It's an engine of samsara that's driven by ignorance. Remember, remember our parakeet in the mirror? It would, it would either cuddle the image, that's attachment, attack the image, which is uh, aggression or anger, or be indifferent, which is bewilderment. These are called the three mental poisons that are at the center of all of our negative mental afflictions. Uh, anger or aggression. Yes. Correct, yeah, yeah. 
uh, attachment, or sometimes uh, they're translated in English as ignorance, attachment, and aversion, aversion. Uh, they use the word aversion, which is okay. There's a lot of really interesting words they use for it. Sometimes they say ignorance, sometimes they say bewilderment, uh, because we don't know. We're bewildered by appearances. We're, you know, we're, a relative truth bewilders us, which I think a lot of people, a lot of folks in 12-step can relate to, because the idea is that the, the substance of addiction is bewildering. It, it produces bewilderment or it, or it, um, it uh, continues bewilderment, things like this, so. Okay, other, other thoughts about the wheel? Okay, then let's continue. Um, yeah, I've got about maybe 10 more minutes here. Uh, samsara, I'm gonna uh, do this again, I'm gonna read this uh, again. Samsara, the cycle of becoming, is illustrated with the image of a wheel. This wheel describes the confused experience of sentient beings. The experiences of happiness and suffering are based on uh, causes, sometimes represented as a mirror. The circular nature of the wheel signifies that there is no linear progression towards something as being predestined. As with the image of Yama, the wheel signifies that our existence is neither the creation of an external power nor a random occurrence. The events within the wheel change on the basis of the conditions that are described in the, te in the Buddha's teachings. Our ignorance and confusion prevent us from recognizing the conditions that bring happiness and the conditions that bring suffering. As a result, we mostly create the causes for suffering. The Buddha taught that this painful cycle of suffering is based on ignorance, which needs to be eliminated through awakening to the true nature of mind and reality. So, um, so then the idea is that our experience, and you can see this as being illustrative of any given day. Remember I said last night that the wheel of life ex uh, talks about the, the, uh, the fruition of the six mental afflictions and that we can go through those six mental afflictions in a single day and while we are experiencing those mental afflictions it is as though we are born in the world created by those mental afflictions and so we can go through a whole, we can go through a whole lifetime in one day and, uh, and experience all six of these negative mental afflictions, which are illustrated in, the in, in this drawing. So um, that's a little bit about the wheel. Any questions about the circular nature of it? It just... around it, it's constantly changing. The idea of a wheel is that once a wheel gets started, it continues until it hits a barrier or some such in this real physical world. But it just keeps going and it's always changing. Next I'm going to describe the image of the Buddha. And uh, he's pointing at something, you see? Uh, he's pointing at a, uh, at a white circle. Uh, this circle uh, signifies the moon, the moon. The Buddha points in the direction of the moon, which represents the freedom of awakening. 
in ancient India, the moon was a symbol of cool relief from the day's scorching heat, which here refers to the torturous pains of samsara. The Buddha is shown outside the samsaric wheel. The, uh, the Buddha's diagnosis, uh, the, Buddha, the Buddha diagnoses samsara as a curable condition. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> the Buddha points to the moon of enlightenment and, and is basically saying, there's hope. The Buddha's, uh, the suffering of samsara may appear unending to us. However, nothing we experience comes about without specific causes and conditions. Thus, everything is subject to, condi uh, to continual change. And, uh, and so, so anyway, I'm going to go back on that for just a second before I go on to the next sentence. Um, Nothing we experience comes about without specific causes or conditions. In some teachings, the Buddha is called the great physician because he diagnoses the problem of samsara and tells us the treatments to take to cure ourselves of this condition. And so you can see this entire wheel as a, as a type of, uh, shall we say, Gray's anatomy of, uh, of samsaric suffering. And by showing us the suffering and how it comes about, he shows us a key to the cure. Does that make sense? Remember the Four Noble Truths? Suffering's part of life. Suffering has a cause, which is clinging and fixation. Suffering has a solution, which is letting go of clinging and fixation. And the path shows us how to let go. So it's all here. All right. So now let's see here. Uh, because some, uh, he said thus, everything is subject to continual change because they come about from different causes and conditions. From the ultimate point of view, samsara has not ever come into being. Okay, they, they have to throw us that ultimate curve. I'll never forget, Sutra Rinpoche came to our, our retreat placement. We were in three-year retreat. And he threw this really amazing statement at us. He said, from the ultimate truth point of view, he said, nothing has ever happened. No one has ever died. No one has ever been killed. From the ultimate point of view, he said, but from the relative point of view, particularly those of us who have been killed and who have died, it's a big deal. So um, anyway, sorry, I just had to share that. Sitra Rinpoche, uh, would, uh, he's very good at, at, uh, at dropping these sort of explosive moments of thought into your everyday existence. Okay, now, um, to remedy confusion and suffering, the Buddha taught a path that relatively establishes the causes and conditions for happiness and ultimately leads to the elimination of ignorance and the assumptions that bring confusion and suffering. So, um, so basically, um, the Buddha is, uh, the, used this illustration to teach the causes and conditions for suffering. And so then in our afternoon session this afternoon, we're going to walk through the wheel in its entirety once, and then go back through the individual pieces of it, and then discuss it 
uh, and discuss one piece at a time through the remainder of the weekend. This way, uh, the, you'll get the idea of, of each of these things. Uh, you'll notice that at the periphery of the wheel, there are uh, 12 little vignettes at the outer edge of the wheel. There are 12 little vignettes. These are called the 12 links of interdependence. It shows how, it, it's actually diagramming how confusion happens how a moment of confusion happens, but it also diagrams how, uh, I think that three separate lifetimes are described in those 12 links. So uh, we'll have some fun with that this afternoon. Like, how did we get so confused? Well, the answer will come this afternoon. We may not get all the way through the 12 links this afternoon. We may just describe them in brief and then go through them in detail tomorrow morning. So. I, I haven't quite decided. A lot of it depends on how we re respond to the information and how we process the information and stuff. So yes, I have a question. Okay, going back to the moon. Yeah. The moon freedom, of, uh, uh, freedom from samsara. Yeah, the moon is the uh, represents the freedom from samsara that comes with enlightenment. They're called the 12 links of interdependence. Sometimes they're called the 12 links of interdependent origination, which interestingly enough is the title of this great book that you can download for free from the internet. So there you have it. No, this one actually will, uh, this one, what you have to do is type in the title and the author and it'll show up and you can download the PDF straight from there. Okay, we'll stop here for now, and uh, we'll stop with a, just a, a, a short period of meditation before we go to lunch. After all, samsara before lunch can be difficult. So we're going to practice a little freedom from samsara before lunch. Placing the body in the posture of meditation, we make the mental aspiration that for the next uh, little while, the next short while, we'll um, rest our attention on the breath and return our attention to the breath as our method of meditation. And we'll do this for the benefit of sentient beings.
dedicate the merit of this session to all sentient beings, that all beings become aware of their Buddha nature, and that they practice Dharma and come to awakening. I'll say a short prayer. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you.